Welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. In traditionally Buddhist countries in the East, concepts like emptiness and bodhicitta are common knowledge. Jetsama Akonlamo explains that since we didn't grow up with this mindset, we may have a disadvantage, but there are ways we can work through it. From the point of view of Buddhist philosophy, emptiness and compassion are like the right and left eye of practice, or the right and left hand of practice. Uh, and in having to do with uh, the Buddhist teaching with the Buddhist philosophy, they are both indispensable and inseparable. It is considered, according to the Buddhist teaching, that one should practice both emptiness and compassion. One cannot practice one to the exclusion of the other. Neither can one practice one of those two uh, more than the other. They have to be practiced equally. They have to be thought of as as uh, extremely important and equally important. And they have to be understood really as the pillars or the fundamentals of the Buddhist teaching. It would seem as though to say that once would be enough. All right, now we understand that emptiness and compassion are very, very important according to the Buddhist teaching. But my experience has been that in teaching Westerners, This is something that has to be reiterated again and again and again. And the reason why is the way in which Westerners are trained to to think from birth. We are born in a materialistic society, and while all sentient beings have the, the, uh, the mistaken idea of self nature as being inherently real, here in the West, being a materialistic society, There is a tremendous uh, focus on materialism and thingness. There's a tremendous focus on that, coupled with the difficulty that we find due to our previous religious training. When we we decide to become Buddhists, uh, we have to root out the religious training and philosophical training that we've had before and really examine it. And the problem with that training is that it becomes so much a part of the fabric of our thinking, of our minds, that we really don't understand what our religious training has been. Uh, I can't count how many times I've had a student say to me, no problem, I've never gone to church, I've never been properly trained from a religious point of view, therefore I won't be hard to teach. Not true. Even if your family never sent you to church and and you were never uh, formally considered either a Christian or a Jew or what have you, there are certain ideas that, w- that have seeped into our very bones, into our marrow, because this is a Judeo-Christian society. And uh, you can only understand how much that is so when you become a Buddhist. <laughs> uh, everywhere you go, uh, even on, in, on our currency, currency, there is the statement, in God we trust. Um, and Buddhism is a non-theistic philosophy, so that's a difficulty for us. Uh, I remember growing up in school and, and having to do prayers, and the prayers were God-oriented. 
Um, and even though that isn't so much the case now, still, usually in any kind of meeting or even in the singing of the Star Spangled Banner or any of those things that are nationalistic, there is the mention of God. And God is thought of in the Christian way or in the Jewish way. God is thought of in a particular way. Plus, all pervasive in our society, society is the idea of heaven. And heaven, of course, is not something that you never hear of in Buddhism, but you hear of it differently. In Buddhism, we talk about the pure lands, but the pure lands are understood to be displays of one's own mind. In Judeo-Christian thought, heaven is actually an attainment or a place, or it has a nature of its own. It is not simply a display of mind. It is considered to be uh, an attainment of some kind, something that one would go to. There is an externalist kind of philosophy that is knitted into the fabric of Judeo-Christian thought. Now, that is not to say that on the deepest mystical levels of Judaism or Christianity, there aren't those saints or what have you uh, who view the mysticism in such a way as to get down to a non-dual kind of philosophy, but I don't know about that. I know that the common Judeo-Christian philosophy that is given to us sounds like what I've just described. That makes it very difficult for us to understand Buddhism. Buddhism, and, and the difficulty is that we can hear the words, the words that I'm about to say to you about the nature of emptiness, and not understand that we're not hearing them. In other words, we can compute the verbal tags, but not understand the underlying concepts. And that's really the great difficulty. In Buddhism, for instance, oh, and here's another thing too. Uh, I, I think this is important. Even those who have followed Judeo-Christian thought and have come out the other side of that into something like a New Age philosophy and feel that they believe in, for instance, reincarnation, and they believe in the continuation through a continuum into an end point, still that is not the same as Buddhist philosophy. And you would think that it was. You would think that Buddhist philosophy was a traveler moving through a continuum reincarnating all the while to an end point. That is not Buddhist philosophy. That is Judeo-Christian philosophy taken a little bit further or made a little bit different. But that is not Buddhist philosophy. And here's the difficulty in, in that those of us who are, who are trained in a Judeo-Christian way, when we accept Buddhism, when, and even years after we've accepted Buddhism, when we think of ourselves as Buddhists, we still think of ourselves as entities. Don't you even think of that? Even those of you that are Buddhists and have been for some time, you think of yourself as an entity that is moving through time and that someday you will get to enlightenment. That isn't Buddhism. If that's what you think, that is not what Buddhist, Buddhism is. Actually, Buddhists do not technically believe in reincarnation. Did you know that? They believe in rebirth. There's a difference. 
Reincarnation means there is something to keep reincarnating. So it presupposes the idea of self-nature as being inherently real. Rebirth is an event that naturally occurs due to the gathering together or, or uh, tightness that has to do with desire. Now you ask yourself, aha, I've got you now. Who is doing the desiring? And that's what I would say to you. Good question. Who is doing the desiring? Well, now, according to Buddhist philosophy, the idea of self-nature is erroneous. The clinging to self-nature is wrongful clinging. Because in Buddhist philosophy, there is simply the primordial wisdom nature, which is pure, undefined, uncontrived, free of limitation. It is like sheer luminosity with no distinction, meaning no distinction between self and other. There's no self. Yet somehow, because in this sheer luminosity, all potential remains latent, is latent. It is possible for anything to arise, and anything that arises is actually indistinguishable from that sheer luminosity. Meaning that should a display of movement naturally arise, it is contained within that sheer luminosity. It is indistinguishable from that sheer luminosity. Movement or display is indistinguishable from emptiness or stillness. Indistinguishable. And yet due to the nature and potential richness of such display. It is conceivable, it is possible for some natural cohesiveness or assumption to occur. Is it wrongful, according to Buddhist philosophy, to have an idea of self-nature? No, it is not wrongful. Why is it not wrongful? It is not wrongful because it is potential, it is possible. Where it becomes wrongful and where we lose sight of our nature is when one clings to self-nature and does not allow that idea to spontaneously arise and be spontaneously liberated. That is where the difficulty comes about. When one clings to that idea, when that idea is clung to, when it becomes a tight thing and a fixed thing, and being fixed potentially can move through a continuum. And there the idea of self-nature is born. When from that point, having assumed self-nature, we must continue self-nature in order for that continuation to continue. That is the problem. When desire arises from that continuation, 
because we do at that point distinguish between self and other. Hmm, self and other. And at that point wish to assert self or to, to know self in a certain way when hope and fear naturally arise. When judgment, hate, when, uh, when uh, attraction, repulsion, and neutrality begin to arise, which they do when one has assumed self-nature and is firm and fixed in that. That is the problem. But the idea of self-nature is not a problem. The idea of self-nature could not be a problem because while the Buddha was fully and completely enlightened, as he walked on the earth, he had to have the idea of self-nature or he couldn't relate to his environment. But having attained realization, that idea spontaneously arose and was spontaneously liberated. No ego clinging. No ego clinging. That's the ticket. But now when a Christian or a, or a, or a Jew learns about Buddhism, that's not what they hear. They hear an entity or a soul kind of thing moving through time and attaining a goal. It is a linear kind of concept that is not Buddhism. That is something else. Now I, I, I saw something interesting one time and, and here it, you have to really think about this. I once saw uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak at, I think it was the National Cathedral. Yeah, I think it was. And he was having a discourse with, uh, honestly, I'm not up on National Cathedrals or, or their, their priests or, uh, really, I don't know who the heck the guy was, I have to tell you. But he was some high guy in the National Cathedral. I was so dazzled by His Holiness that really I didn't see anything else. There was nothing else to be seen as far as I was concerned. Um, but he was having a discourse with these other, I think they were bishops or something. And uh, one, one of them said, well now we're all really one religion and we all practice under God and so we're all together and we should feel completely unified. And His Holiness, yay boss stood up and you would think that in the spirit of unity the best thing would be to say yes thank you very much but in the spirit of keeping the Buddhist teaching absolutely pure and not getting the waters muddied he said yes in compassion and in faith you know in goodness we should be completely unified and we are unified in our intention to benefit the world however our religions are not the same they are not the same, and there's nothing about them that is the same. Between Hinduism and Buddhism, there are certain things that are similar due to the arising of the religion in the same culture. There are certain habits or ways of thinking that are similar, but Hinduism and Buddhism are not the same either. And that was an important point that he made. I felt that that was important. And I don't think it diminished the love that he had there. The, the intention to be one and the intention to care for all sentient beings equally and to love all sentient beings equally because he also followed by saying that if a person is a Christian or a Jew and they are a good Christian or a Jew meaning as though uh, they had great faith and great devotion within their religion 
And that religion caused them to be kind to others. That was the big factor. Caused them to be kind to others and improve themselves in the sense of, of being better persons from a spiritual point of view. Kinder, more relaxed, happier. Then they should remain Christians and Jews. They should remain as they are. He would never encourage such a person to cross over into Buddhism. I feel exactly the same. Yet one should distinguish between other religions and what the Buddha has taught in the spirit of keeping the Buddha's teaching pure on the earth in the way that it was taught. So in the Buddhist tradition, we actually think that the all-pervasive fundamental view, which is sheer luminosity, which is the Buddha nature, that is the absolute nature. It is neither empty nor full, but both, in that emptiness and fullness are inseparable. It is neither still nor moving, but both, in that stillness and moving are inseparable. It is neither sound nor silence, but both, in that sound and silence are inseparable. It is free of any contrivance or any distinction. That is the all-pervasive nature. If we had pure eyes, free of ego clinging, that would be what we would see. We would abide spontaneously in this naturally wakeful state of sheer luminosity. Y'all write that down? Naturally wakeful state of sheer luminosity. That is the primordial wisdom nature. That is the view that we all aspire to. In that view, there's no ego clinging. There is no room for ego clinging. In that view, there is no distinction, no discrimination. There is no duality. There is no place where self ends and other begins. There are no such distinctions at all. But since that nature is both emptiness and fullness, without distinction, it does not argue with the pristine nature if all appearances arise. If all potential and all possibility is inherent within that nature, it does not argue with that nature. But again, where, the, where the, the difficulty comes in terms of the suffering of all sentient beings is where one infinitesimally small potential probability, potency, what have you, within that nature, having been the potential that it is and having been realized instead of, again, arising spontaneously and being spontaneously liberated, becomes clung to somehow. And again, fixation is one of the potential possibilities. It is movement. Movement and emptiness, and stillness, rather, are 
inseparable in that nature. Once that happens, the idea of self-nature actually arises and is clung to. And a fixation begins there. Once that fixation occurs and the belief in self-nature as being inherently real becomes a stable factor or fixated on in some way, then the experience of self moving through the continuum then the experience of continuum actually occurs. And that is the difficulty. Self moving through continuum has certain characteristics that naturally occur and are part and parcel in that once there is self, self must be distinguished as separable from other. Once there is the distinction between self and other, there is going to be either, there's going to be a reactive factor and that reactive factor is, it's got to be either attraction, repulsion, or neutrality. But neutrality here is not non-reaction. Neutrality here is attraction and repulsion weighed out to be equal. And so one be, feels neutral about something. There, is, there, are equal, there are factors of both attraction and repulsion in there but they weigh out as equal. Once that reactive factor begins, from that, there is desire. If you are attracted to something or someone, you've got to have it. And it somehow is contrived to su support the idea of self-nature in some way. If you are repulsed by something or someone, you've got to stay away from it and fear comes up there and repulsion and all those icky sticky things. And even neutrality, neutrality since it is constantly resulting, is resulting from the weighing of attraction and repulsion changes. When your stomach is full you are neutral about an ice cream cone. When your stomach is a little empty you want the ice cream cone. When you're really, really too full, you are repulsed by the ice cream cone. It's like that. <clears throat> From that attraction, repulsion, or neutrality, the constant arising of desire comes forth. And the Buddha teaches us that all suffering results from desire. It does not result from the idea of self-nature. If the idea of self-nature could be spontaneously arising and naturally accomplished or naturally liberated, there would be no problem. It is desire that is the cause of all suffering. Strangely though, and here's the catch-22, it seems that once you've got a self and you're running around with it and have been for time out, since time out of mind, you can't really eliminate desire without med meditating on the emptiness of self-nature. So one really has to practice in that way. Now, I've spent a lot of time on uh, the practice of emptiness or the, the study of emptiness, and I've tried to do it in a non-traditional way so that it would be more reachable to each of our minds and like food we could eat, rather than something we have to chew on a great long time. 
Another practice that has to be practiced in Buddhist traditional practice is compassion. Now, compassion is practiced in different ways, actually, than, again, Western thinking. I remember being a little girl and being brought up with my family and also being brought up in church situations. I was brought up, actually, both Protestant and Catholic because I had parents of different beliefs and, well, it's a mess, but I'll tell you about it sometime. So I had actually quite a bit of religious training of confusing kinds. And uh, I, I got kind of a taste of different kinds of religious ideas, <clears throat> plus the fact that my mother's family was Jewish, and so we were kind of lox and bagels Jew also. Uh, so we've had, I've got everything in there. I'm sort of a uh, Heinz 57 variety religious person until recently. Um, and one of the things that I noticed was about there was not, not so much talk of kindness in anything that I studied. Uh, the words kindness were used maybe, the words compassion were used, the words love were used, but they were spoken of in very strange ways. Uh, what, what, what boiled down to me, what trickled down to me was morality. And it was a very rule-following kind of thing. You should be a good person. Well, you know, I'm a little fuzzy on the good person thing. I, I don't really know what that means. So in trying to pursue that a little further, what is a good person? Well, a good person is a nice girl. Well, what's a nice girl? Well, if you're a girl, if you're, if you're a boy, your mother would never say that to you. Uh, nice girl. Well, nice girl does do this and she doesn't do that. We all know what she doesn't do. Uh, and she does do other things and, and she acts nice and she doesn't, you know, she sits up straight and... Uh, there's just lots of things that good girls do. I really, I actually fell out of love with that routine very quickly. Um, but th there were a lot of different ideas about that kind of morality that were, were fed to me. And um, I don't ever remember being told, either in church or out, to be kind and generous to all sentient beings. To, to care for all sentient beings, to be responsible for the well-being of all sentient beings. I don't ever remember being told that. I do remember, however, being told to be nice. So the, the feeling that I had of what that meant, I didn't like it very much. It didn't resonate with me. I, in fact, I rebelled against it tremendously. And, and was something of a miserable little snot for some time until I figured out how to get around all of that. Um, I actually got on a very arrogant, and I confess to being arrogant, kind of kick about all of that, thinking that if you were told from a religious or spiritual point of view that you had to be nice and you went to church and you acted nice and you wore your little hat, you know, you, if you're Catholic you have to wear a little hat, you're a girl, and, um, and uh, you do all the things that you spoke, got your best shoes on, stuff like that, and you go to church, and then you come home and you're just wretched, miserable person to deal with. And I noticed that uh, even, even in my own family, uh, the same parents that could go to church and, and kneel, you know, and do all the right things, could come home and beat the stew out of their family, out of their kids, in the same day. Uh, to my thinking, there was something terribly wrong with that, Ter especially when I was the one getting the stew beaten out of me. 
terribly, terribly wrong with that. That seemed radically wrong to me. And so I rebelled against that awfully and, and, and uh, felt that I didn't like religion. And to this day, I actually don't like religion, I confess. Which is why Buddhism is okay with me, because it's a non-religion religion in many ways. It's a philosophy that is not based on morality. It is based on cause and effect. But I wasn't told to be kind, and I wasn't told how to be generous. I wasn't told to be responsible for the well-being of all sentient beings. I wasn't told anything like that. In Buddhism, when a Buddhist gives teaching, receives teaching on kindness and generosity, you might say, oh, kindness and generosity, you hear that in all the world's religions. I don't think you hear that in all the world's religions the way you hear that in Buddhism, if you hear it properly. Now, in Buddhism, it's like this. There are two, two ways to view kindness, generosity, or bodhicitta. We call it bodhicitta. That is in the temporary sense and in the ultimate sense. Now, here's the temporary sense. The temporary sense is pretty much basic human kindness kind of stuff. This temper, uh, to, be, to practice bodhicitta or kindness in the temporary sense is like this. Um, it's basically whatever you can do in your body, even if it's big, even if it's wonderful, that's temporary bodhicitta or temporary compa compassion. Like let's say if you become a doctor and you invent the cure for some terrible thing and you practice so hard bringing the cure to others and you really, I mean, you work yourself to death. Incredibly kind, incredibly generous, incredibly insistent on the health of others, of other human beings. Or if you are a billionaire, like a multi-billionaire, and let's say you decide you can't stand world hunger anymore, it's really getting to you. So uh, what you do is you go to India, or a place where there are a lot of hungry people, or even here in America where there are lots of hungry people. And you feed them until all your money runs out every last dollar. Believe it or not, that is still temporary or ordinary, human, ordinary bodhicitta. That is ordinary bodhicitta. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were a multi-billionaire and I gave away every last dollar to feed the poor, I would think that was pretty darn stupendous, and I would be just awfully impressed with myself. But in Buddhist philosophy, that is still ordinary or temporary bodhicitta. And here's the reason why, here's the thinking behind it. <coughs> if you feed somebody from now until the time of their death, it's temporary. You can only feed them from now until the time of their death. Either you will die or that person will die, and then you are unable to help them. But since that person thinks of themselves as an ego, their experience of continuum will continue. It will continue through death into rebirth. Should that person take rebirth in a situation where they are once again hungry, you can't help them. You don't have the power. Your money, no matter how much you have, cannot do that. You cannot do that. 
Your money can't buy that. Your cure, no matter how wonderful it is, cannot cure all diseases. And it cannot even cure the same person if they get reborn again as a human in the next life, the next time they have the same disease, because you won't be there to do it. So it's a temporary cure, it's an ordinary cure. It doesn't solve the problem of suffering. However, we are told that one should practice ordinary or temporary bodhicitta. You can't think that you're a Buddhist if you see someone that's hungry or sick and you don't help them. I mean, you can't think that uh, you're doing any good if you're not practicing ordinary human kindness. And of course, ordinary human kindness extends to just being kind, you know? You know, the old helping old ladies cross the street, assuming you've ascertained that they definitely do wish to cross before you bring them across the street. That kind of thing. Uh, neighborliness, uh, just kindness, uh, giving food to the poor, whatever, working in some way to benefit others. That we're taught that as Buddhists we should do that. But absolutely in Buddhism the emphasis is on ultimate bodhicitta because it is felt that only an ultimate bodhicitta will the real problem of suffering actually be solved. An ultimate bodhicitta is like this. What we have to do is examine the faults of cyclic existence and we ascertain for ourselves what the sufferings of cyclic existence actually are. And according to the Buddhist teaching we all, if we pare down every suffering, whether it's hunger or whether it's uh, neuroses or whether it's loneliness or whether it's sickness whatever it is if we pare it down and really look at the cause and effect relationships that have caused that suffering for instance in the case of hunger if one were to look one were to be hungry and poor in this lifetime if you had the vision you would be able to trace back other lifetimes where there would be underlying causes that have created your present day suffering and there are causes in this lifetime, just as there are causes in this lifetime that create the suffering. But ultimately, if you pare down far enough, you will find that the cause of such suffering had to have been desire, and that in the past you might have been selfish and were not of benefit to others, and now you are reaping the fruit of that action. And the fruit of that action would be deprivation of your own. That is the Buddhist teaching, cause and effect doesn't mean you're a bad person. means that you are a sentient being that didn't know any better. Just in the same way, now you often act in ways that bring on more suffering for yourself and you don't realize what you've done until the suffering happens and often you don't know where it came from. So, according to the Buddha's teaching, what we would have to do is solve the problem of desire for each person. That means that somehow we have to be able to teach each, each person in such a way as to help them overcome desire. Um, the feeling of that is something like when you look at an African nation or some third world nation that's starving and you think to yourself, I'll just throw grain on them, you know, keep giving them some grain, something to eat, keep giving them something to eat. You know it doesn't solve the problem. In fact, it, it creates a tremendous dependency. The thing to do is to teach them how to care for themselves, 
how to be self-supportive. And, and of course, you have to integrate it into their capacity and their lifestyle. That's the real compassionate thing to do. Well, it's the same with Buddhism. <coughs> to give a person what they need in a temporary way isn't enough. To teach the person to be free of the causes of suffering, that is ultimate bodhicitta. And how one does that is to teach the person to themselves practice compassion and emptiness. To eliminate the clinging to self-nature as being inherently real. That is really the only cure. To couple that with compassionate activity and to pacify all karmic causes such as desire, such as hatred, greed, and ignorance, all these things that are within our mind stream in seed form and will ripen someday as experience because those causes have been created and they will bring forth an effect. So what we have to do is we have to pacify all of these cause and effect seeds that, were, that are within the mind. And how we do that is by applying antidotes. In Buddhist thinking and Buddhist practice we apply antidotes. Uh, if there is too much self-absorption and, and there is a deep kind of neurotic pattern of self-absorption and that sort of thing, um, the antidote to that is not more thinking about yourself and trying to find out what the problem is. The antidote to that is compassion. With that tremendous self-absorption, you are weighed down very heavily, heavily and so the, the, the practice of compassion then is going to be very superficial. It's going to be very difficult. But one is taught to begin in a very small way and to continue and strengthen and strengthen and strengthen and strengthen until the scales begin to rectify themselves and then one's compassionate nature becomes much more deep, much more profound and it is filled with the wisdom of view as well because one can see where one is before was just locked up in this myopic vision of self and all of its neurotic patterns. So the antidote is then applied in the same way as if one were extremely prideful, extremely arrogant and prideful and strong-willed. The, the antidote that one would apply then is the meditation on emptiness of self-nature <clears throat> and the practice of the equality of all that lives. It's very hard for a prideful person to say, uh, my view is equal to your view. Your view is equal to my view. A prideful person will say, yes, that's true in theory, but I have the answer. <laughs> so a prideful person has to practice meditating. It doesn't mean that you have to accept the opinion of everybody that walks around. I mean, that would be silly. Someone might tell you to walk into a wall. Are you going to do it? Jump off a building. Are you going to do it? Probably not a smart thing to do. But you would meditate on the equality of the nature of all that lives because in Buddhist philosophy, all sentient beings are equal. And you, unfortunately, are not a star. So one applies the antidote. And in giving that kind of practice to a sentient being through teaching or through communicating in some way or through helping to propagate the Dharma 
helping to propagate the the the, ta the, the path. Um, one is applying actually supreme or ultimate bodhicitta and that once that person takes hold of their practice and begins to practice really using the technology and not only that stuff like kindness and and the meditating on the equality of all that all that lives but actually getting into the deeper technology of generation and completion stage practice where one really undermines ego clinging through using the mechanics of, of generation stage practice, generating oneself as a, a meditational deity and then accomplishing that practice and then uh, um, uh, also practicing the absorption of that accomplishment into shunyata or emptiness. This technology is meant as an antidote and it actually fixes the problem. Once you communicate that to a person and start them on the method and they actually begin to make progress, you yourself are practicing supreme bodhicitta, exceptional bodhicitta. Whatever that person accomplishes in this lifetime in terms of weighing out unfortunate or negative causes with uh, beneficial practice, whatever that person accomplishes in terms of their meditation, they will carry that into the bardo experience. They will carry that into the next life and it will cause an auspicious rebirth. Food and medicine will not do that. Nothing materialistic or worldly can do that. So you have two kinds of bodhicitta to practice, the temporary or conditional or inferior in a way, in its capacity to be long-lasting, and you have the ultimate supreme bodhicitta to practice. But you should not say, well, I'm only going to practice one such as the temporary one because I really want to be a nice guy. That would be pretty stupid and limiting. And you should not say that I only want to practice the supreme stuff because I'm a really high guy. That would also be limited and stupid. And the Buddha teaches us to practice both to the best of our capacity, but definitely the more weight is put in supreme or ultimate bodhicitta. Definitely that's true. That bodhicitta should always be practiced in conjunction with meditation on emptiness. Meditation on the emptiness of self-nature. <coughs> and there are specific ways to do that. One should not sit down and just decide not to be anybody. Most of us go through our lives not being anybody anyway. If that were all it took, all the nobodies in the world would be enlightened, and that's not true. Is it? Some of us actually try to do that. We try to be kind of poor, and we try to be kind of, hey, I don't care. Go ahead, do whatever you want. I'm nobody. I just won't be important because it's really not so holy to be important. And they think that that's going to do it. That isn't it. That's you being important, also clinging, being non-important. That's just as much ego clinging as you being important. Meditation on emptiness is different. It cuts the whole problem at the root. So one has to practice these two together and they are like the right and left eye or the right and left hand. You really don't, you can't, you can't really reach your fullest capacity, you know, in terms of vision, for instance, without your right or left eye. 
you, you can see things, but you can't see depth. There are certain things that you cannot see with only one eye. It's even more so with the practice of emptiness and compassion. Actually, one cannot attain full enlightenment without these two being practiced equally, deeply, and profoundly. If you meditate only on emptiness, you will achieve partial realization or a kind of uh, what's called a prachiga buddha. It's a partial mastery, a partial enlightenment, but it's not the whole thing. It does not result in the ultimate achievement. If you only practice compassion, you will achieve a great deal of virtue, and that virtue will lead to very auspicious result, very auspicious re rebirth, and a condition that is like realization in its pleasantness. But it is not enlightenment. Neither are fully, f if you practice only one and not the other, uh, you will not be fully free of the cycle of death and rebirth, of, con of conditioned rebirth. There will always be conditioned rebirth, actually. If you practice both equally and attain Buddhahood, or, or, very, uh, or very advanced bodhisattvahood, you may, and probably due to your compassion, still wish to continue being reborn in order to benefit sentient beings, but you will choose certain conditions to achieve certain results. And your life will be a display of benefit for all sentient beings. They will be provided with nurturing, with refuge, with help, with assistance of some kind or another due to your efforts. And then eventually, due to your efforts, all sentient beings will achieve liberation. More and more will be bodhisattvas and all sentient beings will achieve liberation. And so the goal then is to achieve that kind of Buddhahood, a kind of awareness where one can be of ultimate benefit to sentient beings. Now, the interesting thing that I have not mentioned that is difficult uh, to, to think about, but you, you must think about it, is this. We are ordinary sentient beings, and so what we can do to benefit others is limited. In order to truly be of benefit our, ourselves, we actually have to be reborn as a sublime incarnation, as a tulku or reincarnate lama, or which is like a bodhisattva, or and ultimately become Buddhas, ultimately become Buddhas. As realized bodhisattvas and as Buddhas, then we can really accomplish the ultimate bodhicitta, because it is in that state that we are able to bring ultimate benefit to sentient beings. If we ourselves attain enlightenment, realization, then we can return in such a form as to bring ultimate benefit to sentient beings. As ordinary sentient beings, we still have our own problems, and it is difficult for us to do that. So our engaging in our own practice in a very firm and determined way actually is the ultimate kindness. And you should not think that you should be out doing good to the, to the uh, elimination or uh, distraction from your own practice. Your own practice is extremely important. Your attainment of realization is extremely important. 
Because it's like building muscle so that you can lift the burdens of other sentient beings. You will really be empowered then and, and able to benefit all sentient beings. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.